This is The Guardian. Today, the killing of a young black man in London at the hands of the police raises old questions for the new chief of the Met. Saturday, hundreds of people gathered to protest outside New Scotland Yard, home of London's Metropolitan Police. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. They were there to demonstrate against the killing of Chris Carver, who was shot by the police in South London just over two weeks ago. We find ourselves yet again protesting for. Uh, the police to treat us in a way in which, which is human. We're essentially calling for the police force to humanise the young black male. Chris was unarmed. He was 24 years old, engaged to be married and soon to be a father with a baby on the way. To be honest, it's, it's kind of nightmare deja vu. It's the worst thing. You know, I'm a father. I've had my children have reached that age and I can't imagine what it's like to bury your child. I just can't imagine that. Protesters were emotional, hurt and tired. This happened in my father's generation, this happened to my generation and I'm sat here or stood here now and watching it potentially happen to my children's generation as well. Um, we have lost a young 24-year-old unarmed male um, and it's, it's scary, it's scary. In the last two decades, Chris Carber has become the fourth black man to be shot dead by police while not holding a weapon, following Azel Rodney, Mark Duggan and Jermaine Baker. The reason for me I'm here is because I think that we do need justice and we do need to do something about it. We need to be heard. We've tried the protests and we've tried the different things in the streets and it gets to a stage where you just think, what more can we do to make this stop? The protests are spreading. Last weekend, there were demonstrations in Manchester, Coventry, and Southampton. Yeah, I want the man to reach out because we need to train together. Right now, we've got 10 to 20 people here in the crowd. Next time, we need to have 50. The next time, we need to have 100. The next time, we need to have 1,000. And when the police see 1,000 of us, right up. Now, as part of its investigation into the killing, the police watchdog says it is considering whether race was a factor. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, the killing of Chris Carver. Damien Gale, you're a Guardian reporter and you've been covering the death of Chris Carver. What do we know about what happened the night of his killing? So what we know, on the night of Monday the 5th of September, Chris Carber, a 24-year-old black man, was driving through Streatham, South London, in an Audi, not far from where he grew up. Just before 10pm, the car he was driving was identified as suspicious by police. They followed him into Kirkstall Gardens. There, one police car rammed him from behind, 
and another police car boxed him in at the front. What happened next is unclear, but at some point, an armed police officer fired a single shot through the driver's side windscreen of his car and hit him in the head. And why was the car deemed suspicious? Why was Chris a target for the Met Police that night? The Met Police, in their cars, have got a system that they use called automatic number plate recognition. So as you drive past them, their cars can automatically read your number plate and check that against their databases. They did that with the car that Chris was driving. And it came up that it had been involved in a firearms incident a few days earlier. And that's all they knew at that point? That's all they knew. That's all they knew at that point, um, that this car was, that was driving through Streatham had been involved in a firearms incident. They had no idea where it was going. As far as we know, and the police have been cagey about it, there was no further intelligence. This all may come, might come out later, um, but at the moment, it's all, it all seems very mysterious. So he was unarmed. He was boxed in by two police cars, which had deliberately crashed into him. And then he was shot while he was in the vehicle. What happened next? The police called the paramedics. They tried to give him first aid at the scene. Chris was taken to hospital, um, where unfortunately he died a couple of hours later. Armed police have shot dead a man in his 20s after a car chase ended in South London. Officers say they were pursuing a suspect vehicle last night. Police. So from, from the reports I've read, the family didn't hear for another 11 hours after he died that, that, any, that anything had happened to their son. Initially, the first reports that came out from the Met, he wasn't identified. Uh, and they described the incident uh, and the circumstances in which it happened. Um, but there was, as I suppose in a lot of these cases, the police tightly control the flow of information that comes out about them. So what we grew to know about what happened came very slowly. What's the general procedure in a situation like this? So in all circumstances where someone is either killed or seriously injured uh, in police custody or after contact with the police, the police watchdog, the independent office of police conduct is called in to begin an investigation. Their investigators were sent to the scene straight away and they began gathering evidence and making a search. Um, but it took two days after the killing for them to reveal that no non-police firearm had been found at the scene. So that's how we learned that Chris was unarmed? That's how we learned that Chris was unarmed and that's how we learned that the police had killed this unarmed man. And what else did the IOPC then reveal? What have we learned from their investigation so far? So far, we haven't learned a great deal from the IOPC investigation. Um, we know that they're, but that they're carrying out an investigation. We know that Chris was not carrying a weapon. They have also revealed that the car he was driving wasn't registered to him. So one of the big questions that remain is, do the police know who they were pursuing? Were they pursuing the vehicle? Or were they pursuing Chris himself? And how did the investigation then proceed? So initially, on the Wednesday, when the IOPC revealed that no gun had been found, they said that they were treating the police officers involved as witnesses. And a source at the IOPC also told The Guardian at, that, at the time that they didn't believe that there was necessarily any wrongdoing by the police. Subsequently, by the Friday, they announced that they were going to begin a homicide investigation. 
that they were going to investigate this as potentially an unlawful killing. But immediately they turned around and they said, this doesn't necessarily mean that any charges will be laid. Damien, what have the consequences been so far for the officers involved? And what have the Met Police said? The family demanded that a criminal investigation be begun into the, into the officers involved and the incident involved. A couple of days later, the IOPC released a statement saying, yes, they would indeed start a homicide investigation into whether the officer that fired the shot at Chris um, had acted unlawfully and had, had killed him unlawfully. They turned around, though, at the same time and said that this wasn't as a result of the public pressure that had, uh, that had grown around his death, the outcry around his death. Interestingly, although this police officer was under investigation for an alleged homicide, he remained on duty for another, well, for another three days, technically, um, from the Friday until the Monday, when the Metropolitan Police finally announced that they would suspend him from duties. And so what happened after the officer was suspended? Well, it, it seems that his colleagues in the Metropolitan Police's firearms units were, were not happy about this at all. According to a report in um, The Telegraph, there was at least one source within the Met's firearms units who said that police officers, armed officers, were willing to, were preparing to lay down their guns in protest at what had happened to their colleague. So effectively closing ranks around him. Toby Thomas, you're a reporter for The Guardian and you've been covering Chris Carver's death for the paper. But can you tell me a bit more about Chris's actual life? Who was he? What was he like? He was a young man. What we do know of his family is that they're originally from the Congo, so of Congolese descent and are quite tight-knit. His father has spoken really highly of him, saying that he was a really wonderful young man. He was also an aspiring architect. He used to be part of a drill collective called 67s. So he was a pretty decent, you know, rapper, musician as well. He also had a fiancé and was soon to be a father. But you've been speaking to Chris's family and interviewed his cousin, Jefferson Bosella. What did he say about the Chris he knew? He spoke really fondly and really warmly of Chris. I'll say Chris was the life of the party. It's like when he walked into the room, you could tell that he was there. Um, he didn't shy away from showing like the people he cared for, that he cared for them and that he appreciated them, that he loved them. Um, so he had so much going for him, he had a lot of potential, which makes this tragedy all, all the more worse. And how are Chris's family coping now? His family, understandably, were completely heartbroken, really grief-stricken. And I think it was almost made worse by the fact that, you know, they didn't find out um, until around 11 hours later that Chris had died. So, you know, his mum, who usually would go out to work in the morning, didn't know immediately when leaving the house. And how did Jefferson learn about his cousin's death? He said that he was just at work when he got sent a screenshot of um, a news article by like a friend and the friend had written Chris, question mark, question mark, question mark um, in the message. And I just started like hyperventilating and I was like really, really scared and anxious. Um, then I called like a mutual friend of me and Chris and he, he brought the news. He said, yeah, Chris is dead. Mm. Um, I just remember just crying 
I was crying and crying and crying and crying. It just seemed so cruel, like it didn't make sense as to why that would have happened to him. And I had so many questions. Mm. And I remember just feeling angry. Just angry at life, angry at God, angry at the police, angry at everyone. I did see footage of Chris's mother from an interview on TV, and it's just so devastating to see how consumed she was by her grief, just weeping and struggling to speak. My heart is broken. I was speechless. My heart is broken. Police is taking Chris for me. I don't know how to say, but I need justice to be done for Chris. And so I understand this is why Chris's cousin Jefferson has become the public face for the family. And so I wonder, from what he tells you, what is it that they're campaigning for? The family now have a few more um, demands of what they want to happen during the investigation. Firstly, they want the police officer involved who has now been suspended and under homicide investigation. They want that officer to be interviewed under caution and they want that as soon as possible. They also specifically really want to know whether the Met knew that Chris was driving that car on the night that he was killed. Um, one thing Jefferson said is is that they really want to know whether the police were following the car or whether they were following Chris. Was was Chris known to the police? Chris was known to the police. Um, four years earlier, he had been charged with um, possession of a firearm and um, he was sentenced to four years in a Young Offenders Institute for that. But since then, his family have said that he hasn't been involved in any instance with the police and he's been dedicated to being a father and dedicated to his fiance. What did Jefferson tell you about his interactions with the Metropolitan Police and the IOPC, the Independent Office into Police Conduct? Does he feel they have been supportive of the family? They said the contact with the Metropolitan Police as a body has been quite limited at the moment, but they said they kind of, I guess, anticipate that with the due processes involved. But Jefferson did also say that at the protests, quite a few Met officers had come up to him and said that they were just as outraged at what had happened. You know, they want answers and they want an investigation, a mm. swift investigation as well. So that's that's been, to a certain extent, reassuring when I've heard some police yeah. officers say that. With the IOPC, he was quite critical. Face to face, we've only met twice. Other than that, it's been over the phone, it's been few and far between. We're not getting regular updates yeah. as much as they're coming out saying they're giving us regular updates. They're not really giving us regular updates. Mm. Um, a lot of questions that we're asking are going unanswered and even when they do answer them, the, the answers are pretty vague. So yeah, that, that is, it hasn't been the best experience for, for me or my family. Toby, today the family will be granted access to view the police footage from that night and find out what did happen to Chris. That's undoubtedly going to be really difficult and harrowing. What did Jefferson say about how they expect to use this to help apply pressure and scrutiny on the police force? I think the family hoped that, you know, in light of them viewing the body cam footage, that they'd get a better sense of what happened that night. And depending on what they've seen, they'll be able to gain more more momentum for the Justice to Chris Cabin movement. I know that they've like launched petitions and that they've been the campaign has reached across the country. So I think they'll just want to see it grow and continue. What has Jefferson made of the public support and response so far to Chris's death? Yeah, so that's one thing that he said has been beautiful in the face of tragedy. The public support has like lifted my spirit, you know, and it's made us as a family feel appreciated and valued and loved. What more could we ask for? 
what more could we ask for? Honestly, it's, it's been so surreal. As much as it's a tragic story, I think the togetherness and the unity and the solidarity that has been shown to the family is something that's beautiful. Damien, you've been following the demonstrations organised by the Justice for Chris Carver campaign. Can you tell me about what they've looked like and how big they've been? The first mass demonstration for Chris, several thousands of people were called to gather in Westminster and they marched from there to New Scotland Yard, which is the headquarters of Metropolitan Police. They gathered outside led, effectively, by Chris Carber's grieving mother. It was very sombre, and it was very defiant as well. Stormzy, the rapper, he was there, he gave a speech. Just have the stamina to keep going, because what they've done is they've killed someone. They've killed someone, it's not... The subsequent demonstration, that was much more modest. The, the blessing of so much people in so little time coming out and supporting. There was a sense of frustration, I think, because it felt as though it was yet another example of a racism, an institutional racism that just seems to be baked into our society. Parents told me how they felt fearful of allowing their children to go out in the street because they don't know what's going to happen to them if they're picked up by the police. Every day my child leaves the, the house, there is potential for something like this to take place. And that is not a nice state to live in. And so we find People told me about how they were tired of constantly having to come out and campaign again and again and again. Damien, Chris's killing took place in Lambeth, a borough with a significantly large black population and where polls show people have the lowest confidence in policing in London. Can you explain why that trust in the police is so broken? The Lambeth figures are really interesting, actually. In Lambeth, just 38% of people believe that the police treat everybody fairly, which is the lowest of any borough in London and is far below the average for the Metropolitan Police, which I think hovers at around 51%. Um, in boroughs where people have greater trust in police, that, that figure can rise as high as 71%. So the reasons why the situation is so difficult in Lambeth, I think, is, is largely based around interactions with the police and interactions between young people and the police. Black people and young black men in particular are hugely disproportionately targeted for stop and search and it's often for on pretexts which seem incredibly tenuous. And you interviewed Belle Ribeiro Addy, the MP for Streatham, whose constituency Chris was killed in. What did she have to say about the case and how she feels about the Met Police's response so far? So Belle told me that actually she she lives close to where Chris was killed, and she heard the helicopters that night. The following day, she received a phone call from, from the Met saying that there had been uh, a fatal interaction with the police, that the police had shot someone dead. And she went out to meet with people in the community. There was a lot of shock. A lot of people were quite distressed. A lot of people had heard um, the cars bang into each other, even heard the shot. 
even had the gunshot. And I, I remember in the days that followed speaking to um, a, a local woman whose daughter had heard the gunshot and is still really, really traumatised by that. Belle is a black MP. She represents an area with a, a high proportion of black people and people of minority ethnic origin. Uh, and many of them were saying to her that this is happening again. People are really angry. They're like, yeah, another unarmed black man killed. When are things going to change? Are things ever going to change? This is what they always do. Um, those, those types of sentiments coming out. And obviously people talking a lot about racism. It just seems like another example of racism, institutional racism, and people asking, how many times does this have to happen? Coming up, what can the new commissioner of the Metropolitan Police do to restore public trust in his force? Damien, it has been 23 years since the McPherson report into the murder of Stephen Lawrence was published. Now, that was a landmark report in which it was found that the Metropolitan Police were institutionally racist. We are still facing a force that is repeatedly accused of racism. Does the way Chris Carber's death has been investigated so far suggest that there's been any change in approach? It does seem as though this investigation is moving more quickly than it has in the past. But at the same time, it feels as though there have been similar obfuscations as there have been in the past when we've seen IOPC investigations of police killings. The IOPC, even as they announced that they were making a homicide investigation, they turned around and they said, this doesn't mean that any charges will be laid. Now, as, as Bell explains to me, people are not stupid. People know that an investigation doesn't necessarily mean that charges are going to be laid. It almost feels, she said, like gaslighting. The IOPC have made a number of statements um, about how long this investigation will take. Uh, other people I've spoken to, I spoke to Deborah Coles, who is um, who heads up Inquest, which is a charity that assists people whose family members have been killed in police or state custody. She looked at the timeline proposed by the IOPC and she was incredibly sceptical about it. She said, yeah, they're saying six to nine months, but she said she would be incredibly surprised if that was the case. So... It often feels with these kinds of investigations to campaigners as though the authorities try to drag out these investigations until such a point as the public anger around that has dissipated to the extent that people are no longer paying attention. Damien, the new commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Mark Rowley, began his job on Monday, the 11th of September. Now, he's taken on the role when public trust in the Met is at an all-time low at just 49%. The force has been judged to be so poor, it's been placed in special measures by the official police inspectorate. And Mark Rowley has promised a 100-day plan to root out prejudiced and corrupt officers. He's promised to be, and I quote, ruthless in removing those who are corrupting our integrity. How different, if at all, is this approach from what we saw of the Met Police under the leadership of Cressida Dick? So I think it's interesting that the officer who shot Chris Carbar was suspended from duty just hours after Mark Rowley took the post um, and began his job. I do think that there is 
or could be something significant in that. We've seen him reported as making comments which do seem to suggest that he understands that the problem with racism in the Metropolitan Police is systemic and institutional rather than just a problem of a few bad apples. That's a marked difference from Cressida Dick, who I seem to remember having said that she did not believe that the Met was institutionally racist at all and that the problem was all down to just a few bad officers um, in the force. So in that sense, I suppose there are reasons to be hopeful. But on the other hand, the problem is institutional and the problem is systemic. And it will be interesting to see how Mark Rowley is able to wrestle with the imperatives that are already in place within the force and to try to turn those around or whether those those tendencies that have always been there will, will, will get the better of him. Damien, how do you think police officers could engage more effectively with the communities that they police? This is, this is a hugely difficult question. Bel Ribeiro Adi, uh, the Streatham MP, told me that there's a problem of accountability in the, in the force. Their structures and processes are not transparent. Um, when you make a complaint to the Metropolitan Police, you have to complain to the police force itself. And it's the police who will initially investigate that complaint. There needs to be accountability and those processes of accountability need to be independent of the police force. Lee Jasper, the black civil rights campaigner, I also asked about this, and he had a far more radical solution. He says that what we need in this country was a civil rights bill that accepted that there was institutional discrimination, not just against black people, but against women, against disabled people, against gay people, against trans people. And he said, what we need to have is a coalition of all of these groups who together constitute the majority of our society to argue for a whole structure of civil rights legislation that will enshrine in law processes of accountability that will say to institutions, you have been shown to be racist. Now you need to change. Until we have those kinds of structures, it's difficult to see how we can ever get any long lasting change. Damien, it has been two years since we saw nationwide Black Lives Matter protests from small villages across the UK to major cities, people demonstrating in part against police brutality. Do you think that rise in public awareness and consciousness has led to a change? Are you hopeful that things could be different this time? The scale of the protests and the scale of the public reaction to Chris Carber's killing, I think, are different now. There's been a change since Black Lives Matter. People are not willing to accept that this is a part of life. There's a new generation of people out there who really, really want to see a change, who really understand and feel within themselves that this kind of thing is unacceptable. But for that change to make the move from within people's consciousnesses to the actual structure of the institutions of society takes time and that change isn't guaranteed. So just like with every other campaign around racism and discrimination, the initial outrage dissipates. So hopefully, in this case, the changes that were brought about following Black Lives Matter 
do have some kind of long-lasting effect and it will influence this in the long term but i don't think that can be guaranteed and it still requires work from from all of us who care about these kinds of issues damien thank you so much thanks Noshin. That was Damien Gale and Toby Thomas. My thanks to them. You can follow all the latest developments on this story and read Toby's interview with Jefferson Basela and the coverage of demonstrations for Chris Garber at theguardian.com. We contacted the Independent Office for Police Conduct and an IOPC spokesperson said, our communication has been with both Chris Garber's family and via their solicitor as per the family's request. We will continue to meet with Mr. Carver's family when it is appropriate to do so. We empathise with Chris Carver's family and we fully appreciate that they may have many questions about this incident. We understand that people want answers quickly. However, this is a complex investigation and we must allow our investigation to run its course as we seek to establish all of the facts. And finally, you've probably heard adverts by now for our new six-part podcast series, Can I Tell You a Secret? It is great. And all six parts will be available to listen to this Friday, 23rd of September. Subscribe now from wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena and Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Huma Halili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.